Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today, my guest is Michelle Van Loon. She's an author, and we're going to be speaking about her book, Born to Wander, Rediscovering the Value of Our Pilgrim Identity. Thank you so much, Michelle, for being my guest today. It's super fun being with you. Thanks for having me. I noticed how you laid out the chapters in your book. They are uprooted, sent, waylaid, displaced, warned, divided, remembered, tracked, sojourned, diverted, revealed. And a lot of those have to do with movement and mm. journey. And I noticed that kind of right off the bat, is that, I'm sure that was planned. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you laid the chapters out like that? Absolutely. And and thanks for noticing that, actually. I, I really gave that some thought um, because pilgrimage is a verb at its heart. It's motion and movement. And um, as is exile, which is kind of the the other movement that I hold in contrast to pilgrimage through the book. But I, I wanted that sense of motion um, in all of its um, various permutations. You know, being sent is different than being displaced, is being different than sojourning or being diverted. And you'd go into three kinds of pilgrimage that are described in scripture, moral, physical, and interior. I think those are really keen distinctions, really insightful distinctions. It'd be great if you could tease those out a little bit. I would be glad to. And I, I found these streams of, that kind of describe pilgrimage mm -hmm. um, somewhere else, but then held them in my mind as I was walking through stories of exile and pilgrimage that run from the very beginning of scripture, from the Garden of Eden, all the way through Revelation. And um, the three that I see um, include moral pilgrimage, which includes our everyday obedience to God. It's kind of the expressive way that we respond to God. Mm. Um, you know, we see it in the Old Testament when God gives the law to the Israelites after their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And they're called to obedience because it teaches them God's character, then helps them reflect his character to the rest of the world. They are called to be the lights to the nations because of their moral pilgrimage, their moral obedience. Spiritual pilgrimage is probably, it's it's not news to, to your listeners, you know, that it talks about the interior pursuit of communion with God through spiritual disciplines, particularly prayer, solitude, and contemplation. Mm. While moral pilgrimage results in love of God and neighbor, spir spiritual pilgrimage is an inward journey. And we see it modeled in the life of Jesus when he sought time alone with his father. And we've got many examples of that in the gospels. And we talk about Paul and we hear it in Paul's story too. After his conversion, he went off to Arabia and that suggests he spent time on an interior spiritual journey before presenting himself to the other apostles in Jerusalem. So, and the third pilgrimage is physical pilgrimage, which is also today a really common um, kind of description. And 
it emphasizes a bodily journey to a holy site in order to seek God. Mm. We see that in the Bible through like the corporate pilgrim feasts of Passover, Shavuot, Pentecost, and Tabernacles in Leviticus 23. So it's not new to New Testament followers of Jesus. I mean, it's there all the way through, you know, that um, God is emphasizing you are meant to be pilgrim people. And one way that you express this is by actually physically um, acting out that prayer. Hmm. It's interesting to me, too, just in contemporary times, we're seeing people going on the um, Compostela Road uh, mm-hmm. in, in Spain. And even in the United States, I, a lot of people have been doing the Appalachian Trail in a sort of similar way. It's not to go to a holy site, but it's a long journey that's rough and will take a, a great deal of time. It's just interesting that people are sort of returning to this, of course, in Islam, people go to Mecca as pilgrims, and um, this seems to be a really big theme just in uh, the human experience. Mm-hmm. I agree with that, um, and and I saw in the process of researching this book that there are actually sites um, that encourage secular pilgrimage, mm. just because of you, you know you can. You can search it online um, mm-hmm. to kind of see how people approach this, mm. just in terms of human um, development and growth and processing the idea of um, kind of disconnecting from your regularly scheduled life and pursuing um, a goal that may be difficult, that may expose some of that stuff that gets buried under your busyness. Um, you know, there's value in that, but without an object, without a true object beyond the self in mind, I think um, what pilgrimage is meant to be and do in our lives gets diluted. Hmm. It's, yeah, maybe more of a nameless wandering then. Mm-hmm. And this brings us a little bit to to exile that I wanted to speak about because a lot of people I've, I've spoken to have a sense of exile. It, it could be from their surroundings. It could be they feel mm-hmm. exiled from the people near them. Or a lot of times I think it actually signals to a deeper level, a sense of exile, even from themselves, a sense of dislocation, if you will. And um, it seems that we want to leave home, but to find home. And um, mm-hmm. And this reminds me, of course, of Joseph Campbell, as he refers to the hero's journey, that the hero leaves. Uh, this is common in, in myths from all over the world, this kind of implanted wanting to leave, and then you return as someone different and very similar to the spiritual journey that, that God invites us to. God invites us on a journey uh, to, to God's self, which is within, you know, when Jesus knocks at the door of our hearts, that is an invitation and to go deeper. And um, so I guess I was interested to know, you hear these stories of pilgrimage, wandering, journey, exile in the biblical stories and themes. And I was wondering what of those stories you identified with the most? Well, I think it's helpful to to understand a lot of times we kind of 
throw the terms exile and pilgrim and wanderer around as, you know, and kind of use them to sometimes mean the same thing um, in ways that they don't. An exile is somebody who has been sent from their homeland. They've been banished and they have to go. A pilgrim has a sacred destination in mind. They're journeying toward something. And a wanderer is somebody who is on a, a road trip, an adventure. And so I think being able to understand that we all as human beings, our human experience is that we have and live with an existential grief of separation from God and others. This reality is at the heart of all three of those kinds of experiences. So for me, I am a Jewish follower of Jesus. And for me, it, it, this is going to probably be not the answer that you may be expecting. Um, most people, um, when they think of exile and pilgrimage stories, go to the story of the Exodus, you know, the Passover story that gets repeated in, in Jewish homes, at our home as well, every single year at Passover. But for me, as I've gotten older and um, as I immersed myself in the kind of the stories of exile and pilgrimage in order to seek out my identity and calling as a follower of Jesus, um, it, what it has been for me in recent years the story of the Babylonian exile. Which actually takes up a lot of the Old Testament, the prophetic books that have to do with first the Assyrian exile and dispersion, and then the Babylonian exile, um, the prophetic books, the the books of Daniel and Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, a, a lot of that literature in our Bibles has to do with that before, during, and after um, that account. And for me, that's actually been more instructive in terms of you were sent into exile as people because God loved you. And he loved you in order to turn you into pilgrims so that you could go home, but you would go home different than you left you know, to kind of bounce off of Campbell a little bit, but in order to root it in that biblical story, that for me, that understanding that exile is never a destination. Exile is meant to transform us into pilgrims so that we are no longer just looking over our shoulders and um, fleeing from some place or something or someone but we are journeying toward someone. There's motion. Mm. It seems like exile often is thought of as, as really a negative thing, but it seems like a really necessary sort of training ground for us. It definitely can be. One of the big questions that we ask, you know, and I'm not saying anything new here, is who am I? Mm. And a lot of times we find our answer to the question via the physical, our appearance, our appearance, our gender. Some co contend that identity resides in our ethnicity, our network of relationships, or our culture. 
Mm-hmm. Others say that our identity comes out of what we do, it cl- you know, our work, our earning potential, our hobbies, our passions. Ethics can define identity for others. We are defined by which moral choices we embrace and which we don't embrace. Mm. And any of those things, and all of those are components of identity, but when any of those components are questioned or challenged or lost, um, we take a beating. Our identity takes a beating. We are disoriented when we lose our jobs or our kids leave the nest. Our souls are fragmented by physical, cultural, economic, and ethical mirrors we use to define ourselves because those mirrors aren't entirely accurate. They are not reflectors of eternal truth in the same way that responding to follow me, leave your home and go um, can be. Yeah, you talk about you talk about this identity in the book and you around page 168, you talk about identity, at least in the United States, is really common. Where do I live? Where do I work? Am I married? Do I have kids? And a pilgrim is formed by the question, do I trust him? Mm -hmm. I'd like if you could unpack that a little bit. The do I trust him formation question is really particular to a pilgrim. And maybe you can talk about that a little bit. It is um, the question we get asked in our souls every moment, actually, um, do I trust him now as I'm opening my mouth to speak, as I'm sitting here in this time and place, um, as all we have to do is click on a Twitter feed or take a look at the headlines and we get asked that question in different ways. How are we going to live in light of what is happening to us? An exile is, you know, and an exile's identity. There's been a lot of talk about that, particularly in some streams of Christian culture, that we're we're just exiles, the world doesn't understand us. All those things are true about us, but they are not the whole story because the temptation in viewing yourself as an exile is that you get a pass to stop being engaged with the world or to go to war with the world or to too much accommodate the world. When um, pilgrimage demands from us that we walk through the world um, without necessarily a neat and tidy map. And that comes back again to who do I trust? We are not, we're not called to build bunkers um, and hide. Mm. That the pilgrims just don't get to do that. There's times when it is completely appropriate to hide. You know, I can think of people like um, Corey Ten Boom and many other righteous Gentiles that hid Jewish people. Um, in their homes. There is a time to hide. Ecclesiastes would probably put that in chapter three, along with all that there's a time for this and a time for that. But mostly pilgrimage, and even in the hiding, there's 
there has to be forward motion. Hmm. That God is calling us forward. If we are responding in trust, we will go, even though it is always taking a step into the unknown. Hmm. Yeah, I like how you put that pilgrims are walking through the world. We're curious about the world and our surroundings as well as on our way somewhere to, to a destination point, to a sacred place. But also we're taking the sacred place with us in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can speak a little bit to a, a similar related idea where you talk about rootedness in terms of how Jesus asks his followers to follow him. So it's this, this juxtaposition of rootedness and following. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to go together, but it really does. It can't. I, I had an experience um, where I attended a, a funeral of a man who had been incredibly consistent in his life. He'd lived in the same place, in the same house, had the same job, went to the same church for decades. And it was only um, when he got much older that he moved into a kind of a senior's assisted living Mm -hmm. environment where he had to be uprooted. And that was only a few miles away from where he'd spent his whole life. So he was a man that was very rooted and it would be easy to assume based on all of that sameness, which is a very rare thing in, in this culture, getting rarer and rarer every passing year, um, that he was, um, he was content. He was a sellout. But he had always been a soul in motion. He had always been a pilgrim. As the world changed around him, things changed in his church, things changed in his community, surely in his workplace as well. Um, He continued to pursue God exactly where he was. So pilgrimage, you know, we have kind of those, those models of, someone with a backpack on their back on the Appalachian Trail or or the Camino or going to Israel, um, you know, seeking something. But it is an orientation of the soul primarily um, because God calls some people to stay where they are and pursue him. And it requires a different kind of of trust and um, challenge because it is easy to just kind of put it neutral after a while because things are familiar. Um, Understanding that there is, God is always calling for trust and stepping out in trust. I realized when I talked to his daughter after the funeral that he'd continually been challenged to change and to grow um, and to keep seeking God exactly where he was. Mm. Um, so it it was a good kind of picture for me. That has not been my experience. I've had 12 addresses so far and looking at a physical move. Um, the beginning of 2019, still not too sure exactly where. It's kind of it's starting to get down to the wire. But um, 
And I've actually cycled back through starting to feel like a wanderer again and being called again to um, to trust and mm. to do what I can on my end of things. Um, I'm no different than that man at the essence of who I am. Um, even if I've got moving boxes that are starting to accumulate in my garage. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about holy remembering. So leaving something behind, but not forgetting our past. Mm -hmm. It it is uh, like when we think about remembering, it is not a navel gazing retrospective about our own life and experiences. Although it can, and it should include reflection about, where we've been, assessment of our strengths and weaknesses, acknowledgement of the gifts we've been given by God, by which we serve others. But to recognize that remembering, the kind of remembering that that I'm speaking of here, the Hebrew word for it is the word zakar, which captures the way in which God is bound to his, his people. He remembers the fullness of this relationship with us every millisecond of eternity. Because he remembers, he acts on behalf of his people for their good in everything he does, whether it's blessing or discipline. And he calls us to that same kind of remembrance. It's the same kind of remembrance that we're called upon um, to have as we approach the communion table. It is, it's not, oh, I remember where I put my car keys kind of memory. It is to remember him in the context of this relationship. So um, you kind of see it, I think, um, in one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 137, which most people would be like, uh, that's a really depressing Psalm that ends with babies, the the wish that it, the infants of enemies would be smashed on the rocks. Oh. But, um, it, but it is um, a psalm that was written from Babylon, and it begins, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And it, then it goes on to recognize in that place how far that they'd gone it in exile from God and from his calling on them. Um, and even the, the, the torture and the dislocation in this culture that in which they'd been placed, um, in which they'd been forced, all could have just been um, the kind of thing that would have left them as victims and scattered them as it had with other people in the Jewish community a couple of hundred years earlier than that with the Assyrian um, dispersion. But here, they remembered who they were with God. And that was the hinge point that transformed them into pilgrims. So that remembering is a participatory, um, relational kind of remembering, not just a calling up of data. Hmm. So that kind of remembering uh, signaled a turning point for them. Mm -hmm. mm. And is that the same word or the same kind of remembering that God 
has his people um, create standing stones and altar places for remembering events? I believe so. I would have to do a full search. But based on what I understand of what the purpose of this kind of remembering is, I would, I would, I'd be willing to bet, I don't know, all the moving boxes in my garage on it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's interesting because remember is often used in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, you know, remember what I've done for you. Remember when I, that I've come through for you, even when you were unfaithful to me and, and I saved you from your enemies or I saved you from starving. And there's a lot of wandering and that's happening, but there's also a lot of God coming through in a covenantal way and mm-hmm. asking them to, to participate in that remembrance through festivals and through feasts and um, ceremony. Well, if you think about even our English word "remember," it is it it is to um, to reconfigure and reassemble, to remember, to put back together. Um, it has it carries um, or relates to the notion of shalom, of wholeness, and um, the, it, they kind of fit together hand in glove as we remember in this way in in a way that puts us back together with who we really are, with who God truly is, we, we become whole. Mm. And that wholeness is, it's always, again, um, forward motion in trust with God. Mm. And so pilgrimage is also a journey of remembering as well mm-hmm. as it is a movement toward something. Mm-hmm. Mm, I really appreciate that. One of the things you you have in your book is about contentment and discontentment, um, commonly misused terms. And um, maybe as a final thing, we can talk about a little bit about what you mean by that. That I I'd be really glad to. I've been a follower of Jesus since my teens, and I'm 59 now. So I've I've been at this for a while, and I noted that um, I've spent more than four decades in suburban church culture, mostly suburban church culture, where I've heard the word contentment used as sort of a mark of sacrifice in responding to consumer culture around us. For example, I wanted to remodel my kitchen, but God is helping me learn to be content with a new glass tile backsplash instead. (laughs) So it sounds like a big sacrifice. Or I've heard the word used as kind of Christian speak to broadcast ambition while signaling the virtue of humility. Like, I believe I'm called to be in charge of women's ministries in this church someday, but right now I'm content teaching the toddler Sunday school class. Oh, I just love those kids. So when we say the word contentment, I think we are not really mining the depths of what it means. So we hear in 1 Timothy 6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. And I suspect that Paul, who penned these words to his young protege Timothy would be very confused 
by glass tile backsplashes or ambition disguised with Christian speak. Um, The word that's used for contentment in this verse means that the person is resting in a place of safety and security in their lives. And the context is that this verse is talking about the greed of false teachers and the lure of our own desires for more stuff. Godly contentment says enough instead of spouting Christianized versions of I want more. So I appreciate the irony here of Paul saying that godly contentment is the only more for which we should be aiming. So godly contentment will absolutely keep us in a state of discontentment with the world around us. It will lead us into a kind of exile, but the exile, like I like I said, is not the destination. It rec- It helps us understand that temporary comforts such as a full stomach and a safe place in which to lay our heads are not the destination for our lives. They are blessings and they, they matter. Absolutely. You can look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that little triangle we all learned in, in psych 101 in college. If we attended college, you know that those, those bottom line basic needs for food and shelter Um, They are super important, but they're not the entirety of our story. Godly contentment will make pilgrims out of us. And, well, can you give us an example um, of how that would play out? I can speak from my own current situation in that in a time of upheaval and transition, I watch the news. I'm not disconnected from what's going on in the world. And it's very unsettling. And I would love to find a way to make that discomfort go away. I look in my garage at those boxes. And again, there's an unsettling and, uh, you know, kind of a gearing up to pull up stakes and move on. I understand all of those things are unsettling. And the temptations that are there are understandable and reasonable ones. You want to make the discomfort go away. And so we do go toward the temptations of either fighting it or accommodating it or or finding a way to numb ourselves from it. And they're really understandable. But again, they they keep us in a state of exile, even if the discomfort goes away because we've found a way to adapt to it. Ultimately, just by persevering and kind of pushing through, we grow as people. We, we are formed as pilgrims when we recognize that solving the discomfort doesn't necessarily turn us or or move us forward in our relationship with God or others around us. Mm. I think there is something to be said with just holding that discontentment or that discomfort long enough uh, that you can understand it in a more deep, 
way, and it won't necessarily pop you into contentment mode. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but I think our knee jerk reaction can can be to to really anesthetize ourselves toward mm -hmm. it. Yep. <laughs> and then you know we're not we're not actually ever getting to contentment but if we're never addressing the discontent we can never really hope to be content either and if our definition of contentment is um you know basically some sort of a psychic band-aid um then you know we can get to that kind of contentment um, but it doesn't hold and it isn't necessarily very productive. Um, not ultimately growth happens, um, and maturation happens as we push into it, not try to mm, escape it. I agree. Well, I would define contentment, godly contentment that, that, whatever is happening that it is well with my soul mm -hmm. is that how what would you say for yourself i i think that's an excellent definition it doesn't mean it's easy um and it doesn't mean that there's not a fight i am a fighter i ask lots of questions i get to contentment after i cycle through the other things but i recognize that I am cycling through the the, the other coping mechanisms. Um, I we had a pastor years ago who said that really his definition of spiritual maturity was just getting bigger shock absorbers, so that when the shocks came, you were better able to um, absorb them. So I recognize if I'm cycling through my my bad coping mechanisms, you know, watching too much TV, you know, eating my feelings, whatever it is, um, that, um, th that's not my destination either, that I need to continue to persevere until I can say it is well with my soul. It is well and all manner of things shall be well. Mm -hmm. Julian of Norwich, mm -hmm. uh, little... Hot tip there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Out off the press and applicable this very moment. <laughs> well, I noticed too that in your book, you have reflection questions, and this would be a great book for small groups, I, I do believe. Is that how you intended it when you wrote it? For, for individual reflection um, or for small groups, there are, um, I I hope meaningful, meaty discussion questions. I've been told by readers that they've really appreciated them. There's also a prayer um, in response to the contents of those chapters, because mm -hmm. I kind of start in Genesis and follow the arc of, of the story of pilgrimage and exile all the way through to Revelation. And um, so it's kind of a flyover view. Someone said it's like a theology of pilgrimage. Mm. Like, yes, but if you say the word theology, it <laughs> makes it sound like a textbook, and it's totally not a textbook. <laughs> so. Right. There's a lot of personal stories in there, too, that, that makes it very accessible. And um, I really enjoyed the points where you put in the Psalms and uh, shed light on those. 
So where can listeners find you online if they want to dig into more of what you're up to? And you've written I'm plenty of everywhere. books. <laughs> I'm I'm everywhere. It feels like someone <laughs> uh, I, someone at Bible study said, you're, you're online a lot, but I'm a writer and I'm at the computer and I'm an extrovert. So I need to connect with people. So my, I've been writing since my early 20s and the first three decades or so were very isolating. Mm. Um, but um with the advent of the internet, with all of the evil that's out there, there's awesome things too. So I, I have a website, michellevanloon.com. Um, it's super catchy, isn't it? And clever. Um, <laughs> two L's in Michelle and Van and Loon, just as um, like the car and like the bird. Um, and that's got some blog posts as well as links to where I've published um, online because I write for other places as well. Um, I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm the one with the giant frizzy curly hair and I'm on Twitter as well. Michelle Van Loon, all the places. So. So do you have any final words of wisdom related to your book or anything you'd like to ask of my listeners? I, I would just like, I think, to encourage listeners, well, it'd be really cool if you wanted to buy the book. Um, but beyond that, it is to recognize um, in your lives, perhaps, where you've settled for a state of exile in relationships, in um, church connection, in um, your place in this culture and in this world and, and kind of begin to interrogate that question that um, to be able to recognize that God's calling for you is, is so much bigger than that's not the destination, but to, um, to take a step and then take another one into the unknown with him, knowing that he is calling you forward. Thank you so much, Michelle. I really appreciate you being a guest on my show. Thanks for having me. If you've listened to the show and you've thought, wow, I wish I could find out a little bit more about someone mentioned or a book or a website, that's what show notes are for. Just go to patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. Patreon is like patron with an E. Patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.